I think we've had enough with the debates, wouldn't you say? I've had no. enough with the debates. We love them. Well, you love more, them. More, more, more. Well, I don't know if I can stand that many more. Or any. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another uh, thrilling action-packed adventure that we call The Bradcast on Thursday night in Miami, Florida. The Republican candidates for the 2016 nomination for president of these United States held their 12th, count them, 12, 12, Des, 12. Oh, my God. Is it really? I know. Yeah, I know. And we have, as a 12th debate, we have covered all of them, I think. Seems like about 40 uh, this year. Uh, But uh, in any event, the debate with the remaining uh, four Republican candidates, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and John Kasich, was the final one before next Tuesday's big primary election day with Ohio, Illinois, Missouri, North Carolina, and Florida all heading to the polls in what could be a decisive election day for both Republicans and Democrats alike, as we discussed on uh, on Thursday's broadcast covering the Democratic debate in Miami the night before. Um, Crucially, In order to keep pretending that they might somehow win the GOP nomination, Senator Marco Rubio needs to win his home state of Florida on Tuesday, where he currently trails Donald Trump, according to the uh, pre-election polls. Though Trump's margin in those polls has been getting narrower by the day. So, you know, we'll see. And Ohio Governor John Kasich would also need to win his state Uh, of Ohio to offer any pretense that he might uh, somehow magically become an alternative to Trump. And it's unclear how that would actually happen, even if he did win Ohio. Most of the polls right now show Trump with a four or five point lead in the Buckeye state. Uh, Fox News poll, for what it's worth or isn't, showed Kasich up by five recently. But as I say, it's unclear what winning the uh, home state actually gets Kasich or gets Rubio other than to give them an excuse to stay in the race and maybe prevent Trump from getting enough delegates to win the nomination outright on the first ballot at the uh, Republican National Convention this summer in Cleveland, by the way, in Kasich's home state of Ohio. So it might all come down to what happens 
on uh, this coming Tuesday, even as Trump remains the hands-on favorite, as we told you last summer that he was uh, most likely to be. And as we keep telling you, the Democrats should be careful what they wish for in that uh, Trump offered another example of why he is so dangerous following uh, following the debate last night, why he could be so dangerous to uh, Democrats. You heard him uh, in our opening quote there uh, during his post-debate interview with CNN's Andrew Cuomo saying he's had enough with the debates, that we didn't need to have any more. And then literally, literally just seconds later, he said that more debates would be just fine with him. He, here he is with both positions in a single soundbite. Unedited. Somebody said they want to do more debates. I think we've had enough with the debates, wouldn't you say? I've had no. enough with the debates. We love them. Well, you love them. More, more, the more. No, the ratings are very well, good. It's great and for the people. I will they tell you, Anderson last night got very, very good ratings. We're very happy for Anderson. I don't know if it helps me, but he certainly got very good ratings. No, uh, I think they want to do two more debates, and I guess I'm pretty much okay with it. <laughs> so uh, we've had enough. But uh, let's do more. He will say anything. He will take any position necessary to get the advantage at, 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 at any given moment without shame or apology. And the media will almost always stand there flat footed, unable to counter his nonsense uh, that he makes up on the fly at, at any time it's needed in the immediate moment. As a, you know, opposed to uh, the media figuring it out later on after Trump has already won the moment. In any event, uh, Donald Trump's ability to say anything and be anything he needs to win uh, to win the uh, nomination was certainly on display Thursday night at the debate as uh, he clearly decided it was time to be and appear presidential as he heads to wrapping up the nomination potentially next week. So gone were the insults, the cheap shots and the size of his genital jokes, but uh, largely for him and the rest of the candidates. Uh, including uh, the only real alternative, maybe, kind of, at this point, uh, to Trump, which uh, the, the much-loathed Ted Cruz. Uh, they all played along in what was, for Republicans at least, their version of a substantive debate on policy. But were there any actual facts behind the appearance of that substance? And is it all too late for Trump's opponents anyway? Here to talk about all of that today are our two substantive and or uh, large-handed guests. David Dayan is a financial reporter and contributing columnist at Salon, Fiscal Times, New Republic, Washington Post, and everywhere else. He's also the author of the upcoming book, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. I think that's coming out in May of this year. David Dayan, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show again. The the book must already be done, right? Uh, you couldn't possibly be <laughs> concentrating. Not, it's not. It's not a last minute scenario. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> frantically finishing the last chapter right now. No. Well, uh, good because I don't uh, know. It will be released in May. You are correct. Sir. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't know how you could concentrate on anything, frankly, with all of this presidential election noise uh, going on right now. Uh, also uh, joining us today, John Amato, founder of the Great. And at times hilarious, CrooksAndLiars.com, which Time Magazine has described as one of the best blogs in the nation. He's also one of the co-founders of the Blue America PAC uh, in uh, support of raising money for progressive candidates, uh, putting progressive candidates in office. And as if all of that is not swell enough, John is even taking time on his birthday to join us today. Welcome hey. back to the broadcast, my friend, and happy birthday, John. 
Thank you, guys. It's good to be here on this rainy, windy day. Yeah, well, it's nice to get rain in Los Angeles at all, so I'll take it. Uh, John, uh, all the candidates, um, but clearly uh, Trump, were working really hard to stay presidential throughout that debate on Thursday night in Miami, uh, or maybe uh, we can call it low energy, if you will. Uh, it was substantive, at least for, for a GOP debate. I know you watch Fox News very closely, and we're following Frank Luntz's uh, wingnut focus group on Fox afterwards. One of his tweets had said that throughout tonight, Donald Trump was scoring in the 80s and 90s. My focus group says it was his best debate. Uh, so how does a substantive, if I can use that word in quotes, a uh, substantive debate play among Fox viewers at this point? Are they happy about the... Uh, the more presidential tone of that debate, or, or did they miss the melee? I know you did. <laughs> well, you know, with Frank, I, I always enjoy checking out Frank Luntz's focus groups. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's funny because in his uh, past two uh, with the GOP, the last one especially, they were just beside themselves how horrible it was and awful and embarrassing. And, and they were just freaking out. Whereas the last debate... Um, um, I think it was the Michigan debate with uh, Hillary and Bernie, where we had Michigan Democrats um, in in his group. Mm -hmm. And Luntz was in shock on how thoughtful and smart just the the focus group was. And I wrote a post about that, actually. And he actually came out and he said that they were much more thoughtful than the Republicans and not just running on this anger. So last night he was very happy to start tweeting and telling Megyn Kelly how happy that this group was and, and their remarks was it was presidential. You know, it was, it was an adult. You know, they acted like adults. And when you talk about Trump, you know, acting presidential, he really just had a scowl on his face for the most of the time. So um, I guess that's his idea of being presidential. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll suffice. Uh, David Day and uh, CNN lied about the start time of this debate uh, uh, on Thursday. Uh, they said it was half start, starting half hour earlier than it really did. But that meant that we all got to hear uh, RNC chairman Reince Priebus announcing before the uh, debate to the assembled crowd in the theater there that the uh, that the party would support whoever is the Republican nominee, which is an amazing statement on his on its own that he has to say that. But uh, he said that and then he received this sort of tepid applause to the line that any four of these candidates is better than Clinton or Sanders. Am I right? And there was sort of a, yeah, maybe uh, some applause. Uh, David, how much responsibility is due Priebus uh, himself and the Republican Party for the situation that they now find themselves in? And how much is just, uh, hey, the voters like Donald Trump and Ted Cruz the best, and so that's how democracy works, and Republicans are not to blame at all here? Well, this one would be a good one for John to answer, because he, he is you know, literally wrote the book on how these extremist ideas have been mainstreamed in the Republican Party. And so the roots, you know, we're seeing kind of a lot of articles about the roots of Donald Trump's rise. And it, it goes back many, many, many years. Uh, you're, you're talking about the rise of Fox News, mm-hmm. the sort of delegitimization of Democratic presidents and Democratic politicians, uh, all of this conspires, uh, and, and certainly uh, the, the demonization of immigrants, the demonization of, of you know, a whole host mm-hmm. of figures. 
uh, ends up with what you have now, which is a party that is largely based on anger. And, and yeah. The, well, the reason that I had actually asked you about it specifically is because I know that you spent years uh, covering all of the news as it was going on over at the news desk at Fire Dog Lake. And we saw for years, I mean, the reason I asked is because it seems to me that Trump is merely uh, echoing back everything that the both the Republicans and uh, Fox News have been shoveling out to them for years. And now Donald I mean, Trump is literally saying, yeah, right. You know? That's absolutely true. So, yeah. so the idea that Republican elites are somehow shocked that someone who vocalizes all of the things that they've been trying to say in code <laughs> for the last decade uh, is suddenly popular among their rank and file is is ludicrous. And uh, you know, and and I also add that just just uh, as a postscript to Ryan Priebus's uh, call that that you know the, the the party will support the nominee. What we saw today is. Marco Rubio saying to his voters in Ohio to vote not for me, but to vote for John Kasich in a kind of game theory way of denying uh, Donald Trump the ability to have a majority of votes, uh, majority of delegates Mm -hmm. at the convention. So this game is still being played to try to come up with a way to stop Trump that is not even in the particular individual interests of the candidates in question. Uh, John, how is it possible, John Amato, how is it possible that, uh, well, that they, that, you know, somebody like Priebus or, or the, uh, you know, the other established, the leaders of the so-called establishment GOP, how can it be that they spent so many years not understanding where they were heading. I mean, you know, David's right. This is what they have been doing for years. Um, I, I, you know, I'm still trying to make sense of this. Their surprise that, uh, oh, what do you know? A guy who is parroting back everything we have said out loud for years is suddenly the front runner in the race. Yeah, I mean, I think a little of it is denial and the fact that the, the grand poobahs, you know, they are very wealthy people who have always can have control of everything and employees and in a way they probably consider a lot of the voters their employees and remember um, back in when when Obama got elected he was such a powerful presence his uh, that he scared the the grand poobahs of the GOP and they're the ones that opened the floodgates that allowed the Tea Party to be formed because they were so afraid of, of what Obama's speaking capability and his presence could do to the country and to their party alone that they let these nuts in, in, into their house, and now they can't get rid of them. I mean, they should have been tipped off when David Bratt won his election. That should have been at least, you know, even as in much denial they have, it's like they took out the number two man in the house, Eric Cantor. Right. I mean, this guy was like you know, some sort of a history professor in some little college that I think was f- granted from the Koch brothers. Mm-hmm. And, and it was based just on immigration alone. And, um, and remember, you know, with right-wing talk radio or AM hate radio, their whole shtick is to keep people angry. It's very profitable. So it started back in the day with Rush Limbaugh. But their whole gig, it, in a way, it's not about policy. 
You know, it's not, I mean, they talk about issues. It's not really about issues. It's about, in a way, keeping their followers and listeners angry, but also to hate liberals, to hate progressive change. And that anger, now you see it, it's, it's been ratcheted up. As soon as Obama got elected, you just saw the vitriol, that, especially the summer of, of uh, 2009. I mean, it was just horrific. And, um, and this is what we have today. And all you have is Trump just echoing exactly what all these talk show hosts did about kicking all the people out, you know, that the Mexicans are rapists. And, uh, but don't forget, there's another part of Trump's, uh, his, his, uh, how he's, his charisma, it, it's part of that televangelist prosperity movement, mm. right? In other words, you know, you're not, if you're rich, I'm a rich, I got a plane, please, mm. you know, I need another plane. Yeah. And they believe that if they're wealthy, they're in God's will. Sarah Posner wrote a great article about this whole effect, and that's one of the reasons why he's winning such a big evangelical swath of voters over Ted Cruz. I mean, it's disturbing when you read it, but then you can understand it. Yeah, and it's that's what really gets me about the uh, the evangelicals. They're not really Christians when you prefer to have greed and success and money, and that is your your overriding goal, the prosperity theology. But one thing I just want to say is I think that um, not only is uh, Trump and the rise of the Tea Party a product of the uh, the decades of the media and the Republican Party fomenting with these these whistle words that they use to get everybody angry and all worked up, but it's also shows the limits of ideology because look at what the republican party has done look at what the elites have done they don't like their base and what they've done is they've just ignored the data that shows that this is who their base actually is and let me get into some of that by the way that's desi i don't think oh, i give oh, you a proper right, introduction desi doyan our producer thank you oh, is that desi doyan yeah that's her you've heard of her <laughs> oh very she's, funny. Was desi? yeah she's she's very good <laughs> uh-huh. uh, spe- i thought i was a political gnome <laughs> speaking uh well she might be uh speaking of uh subs well of policies of the republican party i want to see if i can fly through a few of these uh, quick ones here and and David Day and I suspect you'll be able to uh, uh, confirm or debunk in short order uh, since they tried to be since they tried to stick to policy in this debate. Let's run through a few of these uh, policy responses from some of these candidates. Uh, John Kasich was asked about uh, criticism that he backs corporate interests over middle class jobs when it comes to uh, to trade deals and so forth. Uh, NAFTA TPP. Uh, Here's a quick clip from Kasich. Critics say these deals are great for corporate America's bottom line. How do you respond to the criticism that you've been catering to boardrooms at the expense of the American middle class? We want to have free trade, but fair trade. When people cheat, when countries cheat and they take advantage of us, we need to blow the whistle. Trade has to be balanced, and we have to make sure that when we see a violation, like some country that dumping their products into this country, believe me, as president, I will stand up and I will shut down those imports because they are a violation of the agreement we have and the American worker expects us to stand up. I understand their plight. Uh, David Day, and the problem with these trade treaties, at least as far as voters are concerned, is not really that the foreign countries are cheating, is it? Isn't it quite simply that they pay lower wages to workers and therefore it's cheaper to produce stuff overseas and that costs American jobs? Kind of end of story? That's part of it, but... uh, Kasich was talking about something very particular there, and he was talking about the Chinese steel industry that dumps their product on the market mm-hmm. at, at very low prices and wedges out domestic producers, particularly in Ohio. There's a huge issue in Ohio. 
uh, and Rob Portman and uh, Sherrod Brown have have legislation that actually passed uh, to you know get rid of that kind of dumping. But that was a fascinating question. The whole first ten minutes of the debate was actually kind of fascinating. And what it shows is that there's no way this Trans-Pacific Partnership is going to pass this year. Mm. Uh, and even John Kasich, who is nominally for free trade, mm-hmm. had to hide his true position by talking about that particular issue, which has residents in Ohio, uh, and, and hide. He, he kind of wedged in, yes, I'm for trade, uh, uh, and yes, I'm for TPP. Like in the middle of three minutes of talking uh, about how we have to protect workers, and of course Trump and Cruz were just—they didn't even have to hide it. They were adamantly against TPP and 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 the particular mm-hmm. trade regime well, that he- we have in America. And uh, this is actually kind of a throwback to where Republicans were 60, 70, 80 years ago, where they were kind of the anti-trade isolationist party. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is that these trade deals aren't really even about trade anymore. They're not about tariffs. They're about uh, in securing corporate profits uh, by changing national laws and smoothing regulations so that uh, basically corporations can operate on both sides of the border with relative impunity. And uh, the fact that Republicans realize that their voters aren't going to stand for this anymore and that they had to change their pro-business views uh, is is very critical, uh, uh, particularly to this policy, this TPP agreement that has to be ratified by Congress. Uh, John Amato, uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, that trade and so forth and H-1B visas. And, and uh, you know, I could almost hear people turning off the debate during that first part <laughs> that uh, David Dayen found so fascinating. I was riveted. I know you were. <laughs> but so my question actually is, does substantive discussion like that, John, for the first time really in the GOP debate, at least so far this season, it seems to me, does that actually help any of these candidates at this point? It feels like, you know, these people, these voters, they are here for the red meat, not for the substance at this point. Uh, What is the sense that you get in scouring uh, your friends at Fox and Friends today? Well, actually, I didn't check out Fox and Friends today, but uh, sure, sure. <laughs> it is your birth. Sure, your you did. I, yeah. I need at least one break somewhere <laughs> along the line. I see. People. I see. But um, you know, it doesn't. I mean, it's the pundits, the TV pundits, that want to hear this substance, right? And and, and on on what David was talking about, and the reason for this change on the trade part of it, um, it's um, is and I I can't remember Ted Cruz's initial position, maybe a year ago, mm-hmm. but. Trump is selling himself as a businessman, right? And I know how to make deals. All these, the Iran deal, you know, it's all you hear, bad deals, bad deals. I make great deals, great deals. So he has to go out in a way to say every deal, every trade deal we've made is horrible because they're not me. I only make the good deals. So he has to put down every deal. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, for a while, especially early, Cruz is being cagey, and he never went after Trump, and he just started parroting a lot of his positions, Mm -hmm. because maybe he was hoping that when Trump would drop out, or if he would drop out, that he'd get his voters. So I don't know if David knows what what Cruz's positions on those deals were, but I understand Trump's, you know, why he's doing it, and it is definitely a shot at their, you know, South African free market 
Well, you know. Well, let's let's talk. Let, let's let me talk about uh, let's let's get Donald Trump in here. This is uh, him. His complaints. You know, yeah, he wants to make deals, but it doesn't seem like he even understands what it is that he is dealing with, and uh, and that has become clear of late when it comes to Common Core, these educational standards that are put in place by states optionally. Uh, he has, you know, described it as a disaster and it's killing our, our uh, you know, our schools because the feds have taken over our schools. That's not true at all. Here he is talking about Common Core last night. What are your specific objections to Common Core? Education through Washington, D.C. I don't want that. I want local education. I want the parents and I want all of the teachers and I want everybody to get together around a school and to make education great. Okay, but just to clarify, the Common Core standards were developed by the states. Right. States and localities voluntarily adopt them and they come up with their own curricula. So when you say education by Washington, D.C., what do you You're mean? You're right, Jake, but it's been taken over by the federal government. It was originally supposed to be that way, and it certainly sounds better that way, but it's all been taken over now by the bureaucrats in Washington. <laughs> no, it hasn't. Uh, David, am I, missing, is, am I missing something here that you know about that I don't on this wonkery? I mean, what you can say is that there was uh, an attempt and this isn't necessarily around Common Core, but what the Education Department did is they put this thing together in the stimulus called Race to the Top. Mm -hmm. And it was a kitty of money that was for the states if the states agreed to changing their local education laws, uh, particularly around charter schools, around high-stakes testing, around teacher evaluations based on performance. Uh, they would give up this money if they changed this law. And, and it really did... Uh, cause and usher in this kind of revolution uh, at the local level in in terms of uh, education laws on K through 12. Now that doesn't really extend to to Common Core. And and actually, what's interesting about the education debate is that just last year, a new law called the Every Student Succeeds Act passed that devolves a lot of federal education policy down to the state. So this this has already been accomplished. So this is a kind of thing where, you know, God forbid Trump wins the election, he can say, look what we accomplished. We brought, we got the bureaucrats out of uh, 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 your your local education mm -hmm. policy when it was, in fact, already done it last was, year. Yeah, exactly. Uh, here was uh, Ted Cruz talking about school choice, uh, which came up as well. School choice, uh, charter, uh, charter schools and, and vouchers yeah. and so forth. I intend to work to abolish the Federal Department of Education and send education back to the states and back to the local governments. The most important reform we can do in education after getting the federal government out of it is expand school choice, expand charter schools and home schools and private schools and vouchers and scholarships and give every child in need an opportunity to access to a quality education. Let's, so that's... <laughs> What what's so funny, John Amato? I mean, he, you know, if he could have thought of a few more things to throw in there, he would. Yes, and we're going to build tents in everybody's backyard, and we're going to have schools in those tents. We want to do that. You know, I mean, it's like what is? It's everything and anything. It's just a word salad. It's a big soup. Just throw everything in there, and it's meaningless. It's a but you know. And that's what happened in a lot of this debate. But uh, but Democrats, there's a lot of Democrats, uh, African-Americans, urban Democrats, that actually favor, for some reason, charter schools and vouchers. Right. Uh, David well, you're now stepping yeah. into the, uh, a, a very key uh, 
debate within the Democratic Party on education reform. And I would say over the last couple of years, the uh, teachers' uh, unions, the, the, the uh, people opposed to charter schools, are winning that debate. Uh, even the president has, has pulled back on high-stakes testing, uh, saying that it's, it should not be the be-all and end-all of uh, a, a student's curriculum in the K-12 arena. Uh, this, this is actually something that's kind of changing, and it's interesting to see within the Democratic Party. Of course, you have very wealthy interests, a lot of Wall Street interests, Michael Bloomberg, wealthy philanthropists like Eli Broad, who are very interested in charter schools. And, and that's because they're for profit, and they would be running them. So... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, yes, and thank you for mentioning that because these are for-profit schools. They don't call them for-profit schools when they come up in debate. There, they call them school choice right. because they're right. very good. So, at yeah, I mean, them. what Cruz was yeah. doing was was the really the right wing of this debate, uh, which is where he is pretty much down the line. Uh, he was taking the right wing view that if you give uh, vouchers to every single student. And, and and defund public schools and, and allow it to uh, go in that direction, that this will be a fantasy. And, and what we know from empirical data is that charter schools cherry-pick the best students. Exactly. Uh, they are not indicative of uh, uh, whether their education is, is better or, uh, uh, you know, better for students. Uh, it's and, and and so this is this is just kind of a fallacy. Let me queue up uh, really quick because we got to get to a break. But I, so uh, I'll get a response from both of you on these. I want to play two clips in a row concerning Social Security. Uh, I was hoping we would get. To yeah, that. with uh, yes. Dana Bash uh, claiming that Social Security would go uh. bankrupt in twenty years. Uh, she asked uh, Rubio about this. I want to play both Rubio's uh, and Trump's response to this. Here's Marco Rubio. Social Security will go bankrupt, and it will bankrupt country with it. Under my, my generation, someone my age would retire at 68. We would continue to allow it to increase the retirement age for future generations until it hits 70. It would be a graduating scale over a period of time. If we don't do anything, we will have a debt crisis. Only 17% of our budget will remain discretionary. 83% of the federal budget in less than five years will all be spent on Medicare, Medicaid, the interest on the debt. That's it. All of it will be eaten up by that. That's a debt crisis. Okay. I, I will let both of you get at that. I, I, I suspect you're chomping at the bit, but let me, uh, let me play Trump here, uh, uh, also related to Social Security. According to the Social Security Administration, unless adjustments are made, Social Security is projected to run out of money within 20 years. So specifically, what would you do to stop that from happening? Well, first of all, I want you to understand that the Democrats, they're leaving it the way it is. In fact, they want to increase it. They want to actually give more. And whether we like it or not, that is what we're up against. And it's my absolute intention to leave Social Security the way it is, not increase the age and to leave it as is. Now, I'm pretty sure that I understood uh, Donald Trump to criticize, to both criticize the Democrats for not doing anything about Social Security and then promising to not do anything (laughs) about Social Security. So uh, let me uh, very, very quickly before the break here, uh, David Day, and then we'll go to you, John. Take your pick there. Well, geez, uh, uh, Dana Bash showing herself to the right of Donald Trump on that, uh, suggesting that Social Security is going to go bankrupt in 20 years. What, are we going to stop paying our our FICA? Are we going to stop paying uh, 12% Mm -hmm. out of our our Social Security paycheck? 
that there's no indication that Social Security is going to go bankrupt in 20 years. There would be, unless we make changes in 20 years, uh, a, a lower portion of Social Security payments that would be able to be paid out. And uh, the truth is that the real crisis in, in, in our retirement system is the 401k system, because what we have now is a system where retirees do not have nearly the uh, resources to maintain their standard of living in retirement. When we switch from pension systems to these defined uh, contribution 401k systems, that has caused a disaster, a looming disaster. And uh, the only leg of the stool that's left, we used to have a three-legged stool for retirement, pensions, savings, and Social Security. The only stool that is left standing right now is Social Security, which is why we do need to expand it. And we could get rid of all the tax preferences on retirement accounts uh, across the government, and that money could sustain an increase of Social Security such that we wouldn't have people falling into poverty in retirement. John Amato, why uh, they always talk about uh, raising the retirement age for uh, Social Security instead of, oh, you know, raising the caps on what it is that people pay in. What is it uh, above right. two what uh, two fifty a year? One hundred and ten thousand. One hundred and ten thousand dollars a year. You don't pay Social Security taxes above that. John, right. uh, yeah, go ahead. This has been a well, bugaboo yeah, well, for a long time. Well, I basically fell off my chair when I heard Dana phrase that question because he's using information from Pete Peterson's Committee for Responsible Federal Budget um, to attack Social Security. The, what, what the Social Security Department said was that there would be a shortfall in 20 years. We're definitely not going bankrupt. That's just a lie. She should know better because she's an experienced political reporter that's covered Social Security since <laughs> she's been there. That's just an out-and-out -out lie. In 20 years, if nothing gets done, I think the breakdown is like 75% that retirees would get. Uh, which is not good, but don't you know? But she has to frame it as if it's going bankrupt, which is just a complete lie. Which now, you know, the the whole idea of just raising the retirement age. I mean, listening to Marco Rubio going to his family, basically saying, "Well, my mother, you know, it's cool, she's my mother, so I can't do anything to my mother, but I will screw right. my kids." Yes, uh, <laughs> it's just exactly. horrible. You know, the, the idea that people are supposed to now work longer and then get less money in this whole idea to priori uh, privatize it as david was talking about they're all talking about 401ks and ben carson had some crazy ideas um it's it's really it's really despicable and in a way this is when we actually need the media and debate moderators to actually do their jobs and to point out that these are just fabrications and lies because now, 15 million people heard that in 20 years, Social Security is bankrupt. Yeah, yeah and listen, it, it's not just uh, we need them to point out that these are lies, but we also need them to not create the lies in the first place. I mean, it underscores that it ain't just Fox News that is out there lying to you. Here it is, so-called, you know, middle-of-the-road CNN that is passing on complete and utter falsehoods. Uh, here on the broadcast, we never pass on such falsehoods, but we do have to take a break. So we're going to take a break, come back with more of our coverage of what could be the final Republican debate. Who knows? Uh, in Miami on uh, on Thursday night with John Amato of Crooks and Liars and David Dayan of, well, everywhere else. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Stay tuned. <laughs> 
Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. These super PACs are a disaster, by the way, folks. Very corrupt. I know it better than anybody that probably ever lived. I know the system far better than anybody else. And I know the system is broken. And I'm the one, because I know it so well, because I was on both sides of it, I was on the other side. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with our coverage of the uh, GOP debate in uh, in Miami on Thursday night with my guests John Amato of Crooks and Liars and David Dayan from Salon and Fiscal Times and New Republic. We talked about a lot of domestic uh, uh, policy in the uh, in the first segment there. Uh, and it wasn't all domestic policy, although it did remain kind of presidential for the uh, for the Republican Party. They talked about foreign policy, torture, heading back to Iraq, violence at Donald Trump rallies. Uh, and, and they even talked about climate change, Desi Doyen. What are the odds of that? So let's see how much we can get to here. Um, uh, uh, Donald Trump was asked about uh, his call for to expand waterboarding, that waterboarding was not enough. We have to do even more than the war crime of, uh, of waterboarding. And uh, to Jake Tapper's credit here... Uh, is this the one? No, actually, this wasn't the one. That'll be a little bit later. But here, here was the question uh, about waterboarding from last night's debate. You said that the U.S. has to, quote, take out the families of terrorists. When it was pointed out that targeting civilians is against the Geneva Conventions, you said, quote, so they can kill us, but we can't kill them. We have a law. This all started with your question on waterboarding. We have a law that doesn't allow right now waterboarding. They have no laws. They have no rules. They have no regulations. They chop off heads. We have to obey the laws, okay? Have to obey the laws, but we have to expand those laws because we have to be able to fight on at least somewhat of an equal footing. We better expand our laws or we're being a bunch of suckers and they are laughing at us. They are laughing at us. Uh, well, we would hate for uh, hate to be suckers who get laughed at. Uh, John Amato, expand those laws? The point was, it's not just laws. Those are war crimes. And it's not only Trump, by the way, who would like to commit those war crimes. Cruz, uh, the so-called Trump alternative, is also in favor of waterboarding, as I recall. But it seems to me that Republicans have never come to terms with what George W. Bush did during his reign. But how much of that do you place, John Amato, on the Obama administration for failing to bring any accountability 
uh, to these war criminals to the point that we can, you know, have a Republican debate where they just, you know, refer to these things as laws, as changing the laws. How much is Obama uh, accountable for that? You know, there's a lot of progressives that are angry with Obama, especially not putting uh, people in, you know, the mortgage crisis and Wall Street in handcuffs. I think, um, in a way, that might be more powerful, you know, argument against Obama's big failure. As far as this, I'm not sure of the overall history of of our country, but I I don't remember one uh, administration indicting another one. Now, um, they were guilty of war crimes, as we know. And, and we can thank good old John Yu and a lot of people that, that Cheney put in those positions. But um, these are the Geneva Conventions. These are treaties that we signed a long time ago. I mean, and, um, and it's interesting to see the military's response to these guys, where they've come out vocally and said that Trump and Cruz, well, we wouldn't listen to their orders. Just think about that, because the, one of the main duties of the president is to command the military. Right, and for the military before uh, during this process to say that the, these people don't know what they're talking about, and we wouldn't we wouldn't listen to these orders. I mean, what does that tell you about these candidates, David Dayen, uh As I understand it, uh, and I don't know if you know the the Geneva Conventions better than I do, but as I understand it, even advocating for torture uh, as they have been doing in these uh, in these debates, even that is a war crime, as I understand it. Is it not? I'm not totally familiar with that. But what I would say is that, uh, you know, we talked earlier about how the, the, the kind of rhetoric that the GOP uh, engaged in is catching up with them. This is an instance of Dick Cheney's revenge. This <laughs> is, this was, this was not just rhetoric, but policy uh, that we mainstream this idea that the United States uh, should not have any moral authority in war, and should you know get down in the mud mm-hmm. with uh, other countries who don't respect human rights, and that we should use this. Uh, forget about the fact. Set aside for a moment the fact that that torture doesn't work. Uh, set that on one side. The fact that we would debase ourselves by uh, engaging in such a policy uh, that makes us no better than terrorists, which is explicitly what. Donald Trump is saying that we should be no better than terrorists. Uh, this is Dick Cheney's revenge. This is what he wanted. This is what he wanted this, his party to stand for, and he's got it. Speaking of Dick Cheney's revenge, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, a- speaking of Dick Cheney's revenge, it sounds like something you get after eating at a really bad Mexican food restaurant, but <laughs> yours is probably right. <laughs> uh, let me. Uh, well, here's his revenge that all of these, despite this horrifically failed war that we spent a decade in and that we are still in, uh, you know, in many countries at this point around the around the world, uh, the idea of sending troops into Syria, ground troops into Syria and back into Iraq was incredibly right. popular uh, at that debate last night here uh, amongst right. all of the candidates. I, I actually, I don't think they asked Marco Rubio about it, but uh, among the other three, uh, let me let me play each of their responses very quickly uh, to this question about sending troops back to Syria and back to into Syria and back to Iraq. Just this week, the head of U.S. Central Command essentially said it's going to take a lot more troops on the ground to end the ISIS threat in Syria and Iraq. 
and you have said you will follow the judgment of military commanders in the Pentagon. So here's a commander saying we need a lot more troops on the ground. Will you follow that advice and inject Americans again into what is, in essence, a metastasizing Sunni-Shia civil war? We need to do whatever is necessary to utterly defeat ISIS. Okay, I'll take that as a yes from Ted Cruz. Here's uh, John Kasich being asked uh, uh, about the same thing. He's supposed to be the moderate, but listen yeah, to his answer. Out hey. of his mind. We absolutely have to win this with a coalition. The Arabs have to be with us. You have to be in the air and you have to be on the ground. And you bring all the force you need. It's got to be shock and awe in the, in the military speak. Then once it gets done, and we will wipe them out, it settles down, we come Thank home and let the regional powers Mr. redraw Trump. the map if that's what it takes. So shock and awe from John Kasich, and finally uh, Donald Trump rang in on this question as well. Mr. Trump, more troops? We really have no choice. We have to knock out ISIS. We have to knock the hell out of them. We have to get rid of it, and then we have to come back here and rebuild our country, which is falling apart. So, uh, John Amato, what happened there to, to Trump's line that going into Iraq was a disaster? It's almost as if he's, uh, you know, Trump is making up this stuff as he goes along or something. Well, yeah, he probably forgot his earlier position. <laughs> yes. You know? So he just said he just agreed with everybody else. Um, it is quite, quite stunning. Um, you know, and, and even Kasich was talking in that whole clip about how, you know, he's talked to all these world leaders, right? John Kasich has been flying around talk to all these leaders they just don't trust us anymore you know which is insane um, but it is a crazy position especially and and a lot of trump's you know earlier rhetoric was was how what a blunder george bush's war was and how much money we've lost at mm -hmm. this and, and it's a complete waste right um, and now to send thirty thousand troops like where you know and also, you know, and I love Cruz when he, he hasn't really talked about, you know, bombing him to the make the sands glow recently. But there was a big report that said that we've, we've dropped so many bombs that we actually don't have any left. <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, yeah. like, I don't know where they're getting these bombs. And, and I know David probably knows these figures, but, you know, don't we spend more on our military than, like, every country put together in the entire world? So I don't oh, know. Yeah, how bad are, is our military? I mean, it's, it's, it's shocking the way that they just criticized the military when it was also their doing with the negotiations with Obama that stripped away, you know, a lot of funds from the military. Uh, D David, uh, there was talk that Obama has uh, weakened our military, that he's uh, that's all Congress, is it not? Does Congress decides how much money is going to be spent on the military? Yeah, I mean, there was uh, the sequestration and the artificial budget caps. Uh, you know, the military found a way to get around that by uh, setting up this thing called Overseas Contingency Operations, or OCO, and then stuffing a bunch of money in that and saying it's for the troops when it's being used on all sorts of other things, weapons per procurement and what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, so we not for the military. <laughs> it's doing just fine in terms right. of money. Um, but, uh, you know, this... this and, and by the way, Rubio might not have been asked the question, but he's the favored candidate of the neocons. So mm -hmm. I, I, would assume, I would assume that he would uh, put more troops than anybody into Iraq and Syria. Uh, at this point, you know, there was that great Atlantic, uh, uh, very long article on Obama's foreign policy. And, and uh, really, the, the, the takeaway that you get from it is that his main 
objective is to you know not do stupid stuff and it's not stuff it's it's the the word we can't say on the radio Uh, (laughs) but um and that's particularly the case for him in terms of the middle east that that we cannot get dragged down into another in a series of unending quagmires in the middle east and and that was the reason that obama in 2013 decided not to uh, uh, attack Syria, uh, and that was really a, a fundamental fulcrum point uh, where he he sort of went against the advice of a lot of the foreign policy mandarins who think that in order to uh, have credibility, you have to go ahead and bomb somebody uh, or put troops on the ground somewhere. I so uh, you know, I, this this is this is an, a, a tired old ideology that is being peddled by these candidates. Uh, yeah, absolutely. If I could just one, one thing, yeah, go ahead, Hewitt, who is basically the worst of the worst, um, his question <laughs> that the president is supposed to listen at all times to his military leaders is beyond belief. Um, and that's another trope that they've been pushing, that if right. you dare disagree with a general, you know, you should be impeached. Uh, and if we look yeah, at if our you don't history, exercise your independent judgment as, as, and the mandate given to you by the voters well, to... Uh, you know, we're not a military dictatorship. Far be it for me to defend Hugh Hewitt uh, in any way, I, I shape, or form. I can't believe you talk about mainstreaming the crazy. Well, that, yeah, yeah exactly. Hugh Hewitt yep. is a a respected moderator on a, a, like a half dozen of these debates. Yep. is is absolutely stunning. And for people who don't know who Hugh Hewitt is, he's a right wing talk radio guy. Uh, and, you know, I noticed they haven't called me or, you know, any of the progressive radio people. They don't call the Young Turk. They don't call Cenk Uger and ask him to moderate debates at CNN. And they never would. And, and they, ne- they never would. Exactly. And he's not the only one. There have been other uh, blog- right-wing bloggers who have been uh, Mary Catherine Ham, I think, who have been uh, questioners in these yeah, debates. I, I, I remember, yeah. this, this go- and you, you mentioned about Priebus. This is all Priebus is doing because he changed all the rules for this whole primary process, and he forced the networks to partner right. up with conservative outlets. So that's why they shoved Hugh Hewitt. You can blame you know Priebus. They shoved Hugh Hewitt down our throats from I think it's Salem Broadcasting. Yep. I mean, last night there was a guy from the Washington Times. You know, Mo- this mm-hmm. is the Mooney guy asking questions. <laughs> it's, it's it's beyond belief. You know, and this and and Priebus has to be the most embarrassed person in the establishment behind closed doors because he set up this whole travesty. We thought 2012, I mean, I loved it. You know, uh, uh, we thought 2012, nothing could top that. And then with his direction to try to change things, he's only made it worse. And, I mean, uh, it's... It is is quite incredible. I got to get to a break, which means, by the way, Desi Doyen, my hopes of talking to you about their comments on climate change, as usual... (laughs) Climate change. Uh, Always shunted off shunted to the end. Shunted off, yes, oh, well. to our next thrilling episode. No we will. Laws to change we, 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 exactly. <laughs> we, we will get to that, I promise, uh, on the on the next thrilling promises, episode, Desi Doyen. But let me take a quick break and come back because this has gotten so insane. The violence at Donald Trump rallies uh, came up, and I think the uh, candidates, other than Donald Trump, missed a really good opportunity uh, to, to actually get in a shot at uh, Donald Trump, but they didn't take it. We'll talk about that after this break. Break with my guests John Amato and David Doyen and No, I'm Doyen. I'm He's sorry, Dayan. David Doyen. <laughs> Desi. Hey, that's a great new show, the 
Doyen and Dayan show. Yeah, that wouldn't confuse anybody. <laughs> I'd I'd love to take the week off. It'll uh, it'll well, that's what we'll do next week. All right, uh, a quick break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. <laughs> I was there when we reformed the Pentagon on a bipartisan basis to give control to the commanders in the field and force the services to work together. I was the chief architect along with Senator Domenici of the last time we balanced the budget and the first time since we walked on the moon. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We've got just a very few minutes here finish up our coverage of what could be the last debate between the Republicans uh, on Thursday night in Miami with my guest David Dayan and John Amato. Okay, the subject of uh, violence at Donald Trump rallies came up uh, as uh, about time, frankly. Uh, here was, uh, well, a shortened version of the exchange between Donald Trump and uh, CNN's Jake Tapper. Earlier today, a man was arrested and charged with assault after sucker punching a protester in the face at your rally in Fayetteville, North Carolina. This is hardly the first incident of violence breaking out at one of your rallies. Do you believe that you've done anything to create a tone where this kind of violence would be encouraged? I hope not. I truly hope not. People come with tremendous passion and love for the country. But when they see what's going on in this country, they have anger that's unbelievable. They have anger. They love this country. They don't like seeing bad trade deals. They don't like seeing higher taxes. They don't like seeing a loss of their jobs. Some of your critics point to quotes that you've made at these rallies, including, I'd like to punch him in the face. In the good old days, they'd have ripped him out of that seat so fast. Okay, just knock the hell. I promise you. I will pay for the legal fees, I promise, I promise. We have some protesters who are bad dudes. They are swinging, they are really dangerous, and they get in there and they start hitting people. Okay, so, uh, A, good for Jake Tapper for following up on a question after, you know, Trump had said, I I don't think I have any responsibility, I didn't do anything, what did I do? Uh, So good for Tapper for following up, and B, Trump is full of it that these people are, you know, hitting people, bad dudes. Uh, John Amato, is there any evidence at all of anything like that to, to your knowledge that these protesters at Donald Trump's rallies have, have been violent or, or brought this violence upon themselves somehow? No, absolutely not. And, you know, after the debate, um, you know, Megyn Kelly had on a panel with Chris Steyerwald and Carson's ex-manager, Bob Bennett and Howard Kurtz, and they went through all the video, and, and they held a belief that you did, which is like, why didn't these guys, Cruz and Marco, go after Trump on this? Um, and, they sh- you know, and they all agreed, and even Megyn Kelly stuck up for, for Black Lives Matter. What? You know, because she knows that they're, that they're protesting, but they're not, you know, they're not causing physical violence. And, and with Chris Steyerwald, he basically really castigated these people and said that they whiffed. And he goes, instead of saying Donald Trump has created an atmosphere which he incites people to greater rage, by the way, which is true, that those guys didn't take Trump to task, and that was reflective of an overall weak performance on everybody's part when it came to holding Trump to account. And this was a big moment when they could have rebuked this type of violence. And they didn't. And doesn't it, uh, David Dayan, doesn't it simply underscore that the fact is Donald Trump is the best candidate from amongst this uh, uh, group, at least as far as Republicans are concerned, 
Uh, he can get away with anything, it seems. And uh, I'm going to ask just your closing thoughts here on my argument that uh, while a lot of Democrats think Donald Trump will be easy to beat, that uh, he could end up being as much of a nightmare for the Democrats as he has been for the Republicans so far this season. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly a Teflon candidate. They're, they're the, the, basically, what you saw last night was a bunch of candidates afraid to go after Trump uh, because it, didn't, it has backfired on them, all of them, at some point in the past. And so they're all completely gun-shy. Now, maybe that dynamic changes in the general election, but uh, as long as the media loves to, you know, put Donald Trump rallies on television for hours at a time and, and, and minimize the exposure of the other candidates, uh, uh, this, this is, you know, he has a lot of ways to, to wiggle out of things. And, uh, and it's, it's really quite incredible to, to, to claim responsibility for violence happening as your rallies over and over and over again. At the same time, you're, 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 you know, condemning every politician for everything that has happened over the last 20 years. David, it's 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 quite an irony. David Day and financial reporter, contributing columnist at Salon, Fiscal Times, New Republic, Washington Post and everywhere else and author uh, of a book that I'm sure we will be discussing in the coming months. David, as ever, great to have you here. Thank you, my friend. All right. Thanks. You bet. And John Amato, founder of the great CrooksAndLiars.com. Uh, you can and should follow him on the Twitters. Oh, I forgot to give David's address. David is D. Dayan on Twitters. And John Amato from Crooks and Liars is, uh, oh, he's just John Amato on, uh, on the Twitters. Hey, John, thank you very much. And happy birthday, my friend. Thanks. And it was uh, good to be here. And I will chat with you guys another time. Much appreciated. My thanks also to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and of course to David Dayan and John Amato. We will be back with you soon. Until then, you can find me by uh, following me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. And uh, where, oh, also, you can drop me an email if you prefer. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Oh, brother. Good luck, world. Hey.